From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at Business and find me on LinkedIn. Coming up on today's show, we're going to talk about the upcoming elections and the state of women in politics, especially what it takes to build a government that reflects us and addresses our concerns. We'll dive into key issues that are on the ballot, the status of women candidates, and the critical factor of campaign fundraising. My first guest for this important conversation is Kira Sanban-Matsu from the Center for American Women in Politics, and we'll be talking about their newest report on women, money, and politics called The Donor Gap. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to talk with Christina Reynolds. She's the Senior Vice President of Communications and Content at EMILY's List. But we've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to jump right in. Kira Sanban-Matsu is Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University and Senior Scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Her most recent book, co-authored with our beloved Kelly Dittmar and Susan J. Carroll, is A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perspectives on Why Their Presence Matters. She's produced a whole lot of other publications. Some of them include More Women Can Run, Gender and Pathways to the State Legislatures, Where Women Run, Gender and Party in the American States, and a number of really interesting reports, including Representation Matters, Women in the U.S. Congress, and Poised to Run, Women's Pathways to the State Legislatures. So you can see we've got a perfect expert for our topic today. So Kira, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you are in this incredibly interesting role where you are producing this really essential research. When you were a little girl, did you lie in bed at night and say, I dream of doing really important political research? How'd you get here? Oh, what, a, what an interesting question. I, I could tell you that my journey started through feminist theory, which I was exposed to as an undergraduate at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And that really got me interested in thinking about the category of gender and representation. And I just am really fortunate to be working at the Center for American Women in Politics because this is what we think about. We think about gender, we think about what that means for women's everyday lives and how thinking about how they're doing politically, what their status is, how they could do better and where the gaps are. So for, you know, one of the things we love about the people that come on our show is you're not only subject matter experts, but you're role models for us. So just briefly for the young people out there, like my own daughter, who are studying similar topics and raged about similar issues, um, how did you enter into your professional path? What was your first job out of college? Well, I really wanted to get my PhD, so I'm not I'm not the best example because I really I got really interested in research and I became very interested in gender and representation questions as a senior in college. So I hadn't been studying those issues, and it led me to want to go to graduate school and learn more. And that's that was my path. And I'm um, just excited to be at a place where we can do the research and and publish it and publicize it because we do work that is of interest to other professors and academics, but speaking with you here today and sharing the, the message widely, we want to get the message out about the work that we do. And I think that you know, for young people, what's important is find, figuring out what moves you, what motivates you. I was really curious and I had had some research experience in college, I was a research assistant and then I became really passionate about these questions about uh, women in politics, and the rest is history. So within the Center for American Women in Politics, am I correct that it's a nonpartisan research center? That's right. So how do you um, approach the agenda that's set within? And is it COP or CAWP? How do we say the abbreviation? We, we call it COP or the center. Okay. So within the center, um, how do you prioritize what you're working on at, at any given point? Well, my colleagues in information services maintain our database. Uh, Chelsea Hill leads that effort and Kelly Dittmar is the director of research. So there is a lot of um, what we do is data collection and keeping the numbers on women candidates and office holders. And we do that 
at the local, state, and federal level. I encourage your listeners to visit our website and you will find a treasure trove of information. Any statistic you would like to know, we probably have it on our website. We have the most comprehensive database. And so we do that on a regular basis. And that's accompanied by a project called Election Watch, where we look at what's happening during election cycles, track the number of women running, how they're doing, and we put that information out to the public. And then on the research side, we are interested in, as I said, questions of representation, understanding what the barriers are, what the opportunities are, and we return to similar questions over the years, such as what role are women playing in office? What what are they, what is their behavior like? And that was the seat at the table book that you referenced earlier. And then we have an interest in trying to under, better understand why more women aren't running. What are they experiencing out on the campaign trail? And I think it's that interest in understanding women's candidacies that partly led to this particular project that we just um, released recently on donors. And it's an ongoing research area for us but we are interested in fundraising because it's an important part of how women reach this. Absolutely. So I want to reinforce for, um, as you're listening out there, that I come to this website all the time. It is such an excellent source of information, multidimensional, nonpartisan. I can trust it to be accurate and I find it really digestible. They really do an amazing job. Um, one of the things I wanna focus on today, Karen, we've done so, a previous show actually um, with Kelly, which was really fantastic, talking about how we can encourage more women candidates. But I'm particularly concerned right now with election day around the corner of looking what, at what we as citizens should know and can be doing. Um, that also comes back to this issue of our donations. Um, but I want to talk first, give us, I want to get grounded in what the landscape is like right now. So can you share a little bit about what the current population of elected officials look like in terms of gender representation? And then even within that, to what degree women of color are actually represented? Yeah, those are great questions. And I think that in the year 2023, we often think that this question has been settled. So I appreciate the invitation to speak on your show because it is an ongoing struggle to for women to achieve equal representation. And so we do have a historic situation with the first woman vice president in Kamala Harris. And so that's an amazing statistic in itself. Um, We've had zero women presidents, so you probably know that statistic um, so far. Um, that would be a blank page on our website. Um, and at the congressional level, we are seeing historic numbers there. Um, women are currently about 28% uh, of members of Congress. And so we know that this has changed in recent years. You might remember that um, after the presidential election of 2016, we saw a lot of energy and enthusiasm and the 2018 election set all kinds of records for women running and winning. And so we do see 28% um, in Congress and at this, what we call the statewide elective executive level, governors, attorney general, secretaries of state, women are 31% of those office holders. And at the state legislative level, and sometimes state legislatures are below the radar, people aren't as familiar with those offices, but their women are just under 33%. And so while we have seen gains, we know that there's a lot of work to be done. And in terms of differences by race, ethnicity, we do know that um, women of color are gaining, that we are seeing more diversity in the women holding office, but there are some challenges there. And in particular, we, it's more difficult for women from historically underrepresented groups to reach statewide executive positions. So for example, we have yet, the country has yet to have a black woman governor, for example. And so there are a lot of ways that representation in terms of numbers, equality has not been achieved yet. So before we go into talking about how the campaigns operate and the importance of money to drive those campaigns. Um, I also wanna, can you share a little bit to what degree are women voting, particularly in these non-presidential election years? Women are very interested in politics. And I think that 
when we for don't good reason right now. <laughs> what's that? I say for good reason right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that when we look at the numbers and the the gaps there that those numbers I just laid out about women's underrepresentation, we sometimes might think, oh, well, women just aren't as interested in politics. But that we know that that's not true. And in fact, um, women usually vote at the same rates, turn out to vote at the same rates as men, if not higher. Um, and so women usually have an advantage in terms of voter turnout. And so women are definitely involved um, within politics with respect to the vote. And they, although I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the message, one of the messages I'd like to convey is that that strength at the ballot box in terms of voting influence isn't necessarily matched in other forms of participation. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Kira Sanban-Matsu. She's the professor of political science at Rutgers University and a senior scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. And we're talking about the many factors that shape who winds up in office, especially with the upcoming election right in front of us. So Kira, with that in mind, um, and you've noted that you know women are voting, What's shaping the way that we vote? To what degree is it um, advertisements, the bombardment of messages on television? Is it what we're reading in our newsfeed? Is it what our friends are talking about? How are women's votes being shaped? You have to go back to some fundamentals, I think, to think about voting. And one of the main findings that political scientists will tell you is partisanship is very, very important to explaining voting. And those are longstanding trends in American politics. And um, if you needed one piece of information about how someone was going to vote, it's partisanship. I mean, it, it really is. People are, um, sometimes they inherit their partisanship from their families or they develop ideas about partisanship over the years and based on the locations and which party's stronger, where they live, the candidates that they like, um, what issues are important to them and how that aligns with the Democratic and Republican parties. But the underlying distribution of partisan attachments are really central to voting behavior, and that includes women's voting behavior. I think that um, what, what we've seen in recent elections is that the country is... Um, you know, of, of two minds about the direction of the country. The, the Democratic and Republican parties have different visions. We do see women tending to gravitate more to the Democratic Party as they have for, for a while now. So um, in that process, how do, how do we interrupt it? Um, I, I As I was growing up for many, many years, the moderate voter who could swing back and forth depending on the issue seems to have all but evaporated. Um, is, is this partisanship so intrinsic to our identity that we can't break through? Or is there a way that messaging, dialogue can actually find the moderates within us and the room to listen to the other side a little bit? That's a great question. Um, it's there's a lot of hand-wringing around how polarized we are as a nation, and uh, I don't have a silver bullet for you. But there are independents who swing back and forth, so not everyone is firmly Democratic or Republican. But from one perspective, it makes sense that people understand where the parties stand, and they, they have their own positions, and they choose the party that they feel best represents them. Um, I don't think that that has to preclude have, having partisan attachments doesn't have to preclude bipartisanship. And so I think that um, a party system that involves identities and policies where you're choosing candidates that best represent you, I don't think that, that, that that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think the question before us is more about where's their room for compromise? Where's Where are their opportunities for bipartisanship? And I think um, we could definitely benefit if we could see more of that. So talk to me now about how, what's the role of funding when it comes to helping candidates make their way onto the ticket um, and to win the ticket? 
Um, and why is funding for women candidates such an important issue? Yes, and I think that the way you ask the question acknowledges the importance. And I think it's often overlooked that you actually need resources to get onto the ticket. And one of our messages coming out of our research around money and politics is that if we wait to participate in politics to election day, and we want to go into the voting booth and cast a ballot, how did those candidates get there? Um, maybe you voted for them at the primary stage, but even at that stage, we still have to think, how, what was the process by which that candidate was able to put their name out there, to put together a campaign, to get on the ballot, and to try to win support? And it takes resources to do those things. It takes resources to get the word out, to have, to buy yard signs, to get ads out on the radio and, and out on social media. And so candidates in at the early stages, even before they're candidates, they really need resources to wage a competitive campaign. And money doesn't buy elections, but it really does help candidates become candidates and then the second part of the question, help, how does it help them win? Well, resources can help mobilize your voters, help turn out your supporters, and help you run a professional campaign. So the resources are really significant. We often talk about women's political underrepresentation and try to find ways to encourage more women to come forward and run. And we lament the dearth of women candidates. Those candidates, we need the candidates, but those candidates also need the resources. So we need both things. Um, how does um, funding for women candidates differ by party? Is Are the same patterns showing up with Republican candidates as Democratic candidates? I think what we've seen over the years is that when women are running, on average, they can be very successful fundraisers. And so we um, point out in our research that women are formidable fundraisers and they're worth the investment because they can wage credible campaigns. Uh, but what we do see is that there, have, there has been more infrastructure and more energy behind financially behind Democratic than Republican women candidates. Emily's List, Electing Women's Alliance, um, different organizations that are helping put together resources on the Democratic side, they tend to be more uh, successful. And I think part of it has to do with the interest among Democratic women in the electorate with seeing more women in office. I think Republican women also want to see more women in office, but um, the importance of candidate gender doesn't seem as important on average to Republican women voters. And I think it's just been harder for Republican women to get a foothold in their party as candidates. And we are not seeing women growing as a share of campaign contributions to Republican state candidates. Is there a difference in the patterns of how women and men are giving? Is it driven by party issue? Is it personality driven by the candidate themselves? Well, one of the things we look at in our data is the what, what we could call gender affinity effects. So what to what extent are women giving to women candidates? And we do find within both parties, if you look at primaries, for example, women are more supportive of women candidates in their party than men. And so women's, and actually women's giving is strongest on behalf of democratic women candidates. So there is, uh, there are gender differences in partisanship and voting where women tend to favor the democratic party more, but this is also, we also see this in where the money is going. So. Right about now, we have two funny requests, like um, two parallel fundraising efforts that I think are in front of us. Um, we're getting, at least I know I am, lots of requests in the mail at this point to, you know, for that giving to make it through the election cycle. We have a few important ones where I live. Um, 
And then there's the buildup to the 2024 election. Is there a time when our dollars matter more? Well, I think that um, what supporters of women candidates have taught us is that early money is really significant. And I think there are different reasons for that. One of them is before any ballots have been cast, how do you know who has support? How do you know where the enthusiasm lies? Well, we often look to how is the candidate doing financially? We don't know yet how many votes they're gonna get because it's early. Um, Maybe the primary hasn't even happened yet. But what we can see is we can look at receipts. We can look at how much money they raised. And so we will, society, the media, um, different uh, entities will look to fundraising to see who's, who's creating buzz, who is looking like a great candidate. And then, of course, that has downstream effects. That could affect who drops out because, you know, this other person has all the all the energy and the momentum. And so that early money is really important to getting candidates on the ballot and to being successful. So if early money is as much a proxy for their viability as a candidate in terms of popularity as it is um, collecting the resources needed to run a campaign, um, are there gifts that um, can gift be too small in those early days? What's the level of giving that can make a difference? You know, I think candidates will tell you that they welcome donations of any amount. And I think that um, we we interact with um, campaign finance fundraisers. And what they will say is people should find out, figure out what level works for them. What are they comfortable with? Kimberly Paler Allen um, helped us with an event related to our research, and uh, she has done lots of fundraising for different candidates. She's a visiting practitioner with us at the center, and um, she said, "Think about political giving the way you think about charitable giving. You know, it's another part of your giving." And so, I think there are different strategies, and what the um, fundraisers will say is what works for the individual. Um, we do show in the in our research that women are providing less of the funds for candidates. So at the state level, men are giving about two thirds of the money raised for state candidates, governor, other statewide executives, state legislative candidates. Women are giving about a third of the total money. And we think that that has implications for whose voices are heard. And so we would encourage women to think about that underrepresentation and that giving to candidates as a form of political voice. It's a really interesting way to frame it. So for, for women who, one, want to support women candidates, and they also want to help their voice and others be heard, how can women boost fundraising for women candidates when they're not you know, working for a campaign? There's been a lot of success with women's donor networks where um, women will band together on behalf of certain candidates, share information, get behind particular candidates, host events, get their friends educated about um, really great candidates who are running this year. And on our website, at the end of our report, we actually link to women's political action committees across the country. And so there are all kinds of groups to get involved with. So if there's an an individual candidate that catches your eye, um, you could also work through some of the organizations that are screening candidates and bringing candidates to the attention of women who wanna get involved in this way. And so this isn't just about the gender of the candidate, it's also about what are the issues that you wanna propel and bring visibility to, those donations can go a long way, especially when you mobilize others in making sure an agenda moves forward. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, exactly. I think that there are so many important policy decisions that are happening at the state level. We often focus at at the federal level, but um, at all levels of office, there are policies being debated every day that are important to all of us. And 
its candidates who then become elected officials who are actually casting the votes and making those policies. And this is one way into that process is by getting behind candidates financially. So with the um, last little bit of time that we have left, um, can you share a little bit on the relative importance of various races? Um, people tend to show up when it's a presidential election, not so much in the intermittent years. Um, how important are these um, state legislature elections, the um, county elections, the state Senate? Share a little bit there. These elections are, they're all important. And I think that um, the state legislature often gets gets missed because people can see local government at work. They, you know, they're walking or driving through their communities. They can see what's happening. They might run into their local elected official at the grocery store. Um, federal level, we see it on the news. We see it on our phones. The state level in particular, I think often we don't see as much. I think um, in the Dobbs era, people are more attuned to what's happening in the states. So I think that they are maybe now more relevant or attracting more awareness. But I think that that level in, in particular is something that voters should pay a lot of attention to in their state. So regardless of where you fall on the issue, know that so much is being determined that affects women's health, well-being, finances at the state level that you got to show up and vote. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for all the work you're doing, Kara. I really appreciate it. Where can people learn more about you? D-A-W-P. Dot Rutgers edu. That's our website. We're at the Center for American Women in Politics. And thanks so much for having me. My guest for this next segment is Christina Reynolds. She's Senior Vice President of Communication and Content at EMILY's List, the nation's largest resource dedicated to electing Democratic pro-choice women to office. Christina, thank you so much for joining today. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to just share a little bit more about you, and then we'll get into our conversation. Christina joined EMILY's List after nearly two decades of experience as a communications and research strategist, most of which has focused on campaigns and politics. She served as Deputy Communications Director at Hillary for America, White House Director of Media Affairs and Special Assistant to President Obama, Director of Rapid Response at Obama for America, and Research and Policy Director at the DCC, See, at during the 206 midterms. She's held senior roles in several presidential and Senate campaigns and has worked in strategic communications and public affairs at the Global Strategy Group and at the Glover Park Group. She's the co-author with Emily List's former president, Stephanie Shriok, of Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World, which, by the way, we got to talk to Stephanie. So if you're interested, check that out on our podcast list. So, Christina, welcome. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. So this is quite a fascinating resume that I just breathlessly ran through. How did you wind up in politics and particularly at this level? Sure. Well, you know, my father was a Marine um, and my mother was a teacher. And I think I was always taught that public service matters, that finding a way to make your community better is something that's important and you can complain about things, but you better be doing something about it. And so my way of doing something about it was going and trying to impact who gets elected because our government controls so much of our lives um, or at least impacts so much of our lives. And so, um, I, you know, I've moved around the country. I, I grew up a Marine brat, as I mentioned. So I moved around then. So I was pretty fearless about doing campaigns and was willing to go anywhere and, and um, take jobs in lots of different states. And it allowed me to work for some really great people and learn some, some really great things. And, um, you know, spent, did one stint at the White House, but mostly in, um, uh, in campaigns. And now I get to work on campaigns and work on electing women. And it's, it's really a blend of, um, of all the things I love. Do you mind if I ask how you got your first job? Sure. Um, my first job was I worked at the ACLU of North Carolina, which was a, at the time a very small operation. Um, I 
had wanted to go into public relations. I studied at the UNC Journalism School. Um, and a friend of mine said, my mom is on the board of a small nonprofit, but I know you care about things like civil rights and civil liberties. So, and they're looking for a, a comms person and an administrative assistant, and you should look into that. And I um, I applied and I got the job and I did everything from answer the phones and answer the mail to write the newsletters and and put out press releases. And it was great experience um, in in everything from a little bit of customer service to um, to writing to the challenges that that we face in trying to protect our civil liberties and civil rights. And so it was a fantastic experience. Um, and and my boss then is now a member of Congress, and Emily's list has supported her. So it's um, come come a little full circle, which is nice. That's really marvelous to see it come full circle. So you did have a stint where you weren't working on campaigns per se, but you were actually part of the process of governing when you worked in the White House. Yes. Um, yes. What was that transition like for you, and what brought you back to the campaign space? <laughs> um, you know, it was it was an interesting transition. I, I should say first of all. When you get to work in the White House, I think if you don't feel, you know, a, a special responsibility when you work there every single day, then you you probably shouldn't be there. It was it, it's a heavy responsibility to know that you are trying to represent Americans, that you are trying to do important work. And I and I think that's really important. Um, so I'm, I was grateful for every day I spent there. I was there for about 14 months. I left when we passed the healthcare bill. Um, I was there in the first uh, first chunk of the Obama White House. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because you walk into the White House and suddenly you're the new kids who don't know where the bathroom is, but you're also running the government. And so um, <laughs> that was kind of an interesting challenge. Um, it was, it was as I said, an honor to be there. And I, I remain very grateful for all of the people, particularly the policy people, but all of the people who make government run. I think it is it is so important, um, but I like the fight. And I will say, I, what I love about campaigns um, are, you know, you you have a you have an end date. You have a you know one very simple goal. I want this person to get more votes than that person, and I'm aiming for a specific day on which we want those votes to come in. Um, and that uh, I maybe I'm just a simple girl, but I like that about um, that the simplicity of purpose there. Um, and I and I like knowing the the clarity of who you work for and what you're fighting for is easy. And and in government that becomes a lot a lot more challenging so again grateful for the people who do it but campaigns are are, are where um where i i do my best work in the first half of our show we were talking to one of our friends from the centers center for american women in politics and we were talking about the role of fundraising um can you share a little from the emily's list perspective um share with us the importance of fundraising and where women's dollars are going and the impact that they make. Sure. The fundraising is, and I and and I will say this, I think that um, I know I belong to a party where we would love to see fundraising have less of an impact. We would love, and and one of the best things that's happened in recent years is is a bit of the democratization of fundraising, where you know, if you can build a small dollar fundraising base, you can do it without just a bunch of rich people. You can do it by, um, you know, appealing to the to to people out there and and you know, making your money in five dollar donations. But it is still too much of politics. But unfortunately, that's the way it works. And so our goal at EMILY's List, among other things, but the, the way we started, um, EMILY is not a name, it is an acronym. It stands for Early Money is Like Yeast because it makes the dough rise. And so when this organization started about 40 years ago, um, Ellen Malcolm, our founder, literally had you know 25 of her friends come to her basement they all brought their Rolodexes. Um, and for, for those listeners, that's your contacts in your phone. I have to explain that now. But they all brought their Rolodexes and they wrote the people in their Rolodexes and said, Barbara Mikulski could be a senator if you will, you know, if you will help. Can you give her a hundred dollars? And can you give a hundred dollars for us, you know, trying to make this a thing? And um, that's how they raise money for her because 
Um, Barbara Mikulski was not being taken seriously enough by the establishment. And so um, fundraising is incredibly important because it allows you to communicate with voters. The reality is there are some districts in this country where you can go and knock on every door or you can, you know, walk a block and that's, you know, in, in your city, that's that covers a lot of voters. There are some where we have districts that are the, the you know that are entire states. We have districts that are the size of entire states and very rural. Reaching those voters and having them understand what you stand for um, costs money. Um, it's TV ads, it's digital ads, it's mail pieces, it's all of those things. It's um, hiring a staff and things like that. And and it's also a way that people the that elector um, sorry elected officials uh, and camp candidates are taken seriously. So when you can raise money, you are considered a serious candidate. It's an unfortunate part of politics, but it's true. And so that's one of the goals of Emily's List. And, and we love that so many of our donors are women um, to sort of show the power in that giving to lift up a, a, a woman for office. Um, so one of the things that we try and do is introduce to our audience across the country some of the amazing women running for office so they know they can give their $5 or their $100 or whatever it is um, to help a woman get elected. So I have a two-pronged question for you. Sure. Um, I'd love to hear from you what you see as the most important issues in the election right now, particularly regarding women. Mm -hmm. And... Um, how they're being explained to help people understand them. Sure. Uh, I think, um, you know, to me, one of the most important issues is abortion rights, is reproductive rights. And I think we're moving into a space where that may move beyond abortion. There are people in Congress who would take away your right to contraception, who would limit things like that. But when you look at reproductive rights, when you look at abortion rights, the question is very simple. It's who gets to decide. And for women, that is a question of who gets to decide your future, who gets to make your healthcare choices you know, for you, um, who gets to decide, for example, we have a number of members of Congress who've made this argument very powerfully. Um, Lucy McBath is an example of one. She faced an, um, a couple of miscarriages on her way to having um, her son. And in one of them, um, the doctor said she had to carry the 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 fetus, which which had unfortunately passed to, you know, for a few weeks. And she talked about the pain that that caused because, you know, an abortion was not an option then. There are there are people who for whom um, their pregnancy is very wanted. And unfortunately, something goes wrong. And whether it's a question of their health or um, or their mental health or their life, um, there are politicians who would take that decision away from them and leave it in the government. And what we know is that there are unintended consequences um, or potentially intended consequences, I suppose, but there are consequences of who gets to make those decisions. We see right now that there are fewer doctors and gynecological doctors trying to match, um, you know, and trying to go to areas where there are abortion bans. We see that fewer doctors want to study there or want to practice there. They worry about the risk of are they breaking the law? Are they going to do anything? We see situations where um, certain drugs are not being prescribed because it could be considered, um, you know, a drug that is used for abortions. All of these things all stem from the same question. Who do you think gets to make those decisions? And our belief is you should get to make those decisions. And that's something that Democrats are, I think, um, are running on and stand with the overwhelming majority of Americans. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone is pro-abortion. It means that everyone is pro getting to make that decision um, and getting to decide their own future. And that's, um, I think that's gonna be an incredibly important issue in this election. I will say the, the issue of freedom, the issue of who gets the power to vote, 
who gets the power to love who they want to love or or marry who they want to marry or be who they want to be. Um, that's a question that we're facing now around the country. This is one incredibly important part of it. It's certainly not all of it, but it's something that elected officials up and down the ballot have an impact on. And we all need to be looking at all of those races and, and making those decisions, knowing what people's positions are. So talk to me more about what's happening, not at the top of the ticket, but at the mm-hmm. bottom of the ticket um, sure. in these local elections, because um, often we don't have the same kind of voter turnout, but they seem quite significant, particularly in this context. Sure. And I think I think local and, and also state legislatures, state legislatures are so critical um, to what to your rights and to your everyday life in so many ways. But you see local governments, we're seeing this with, for example, book bans, right, where we see, um, you know, decisions on on who gets to decide what your what your child reads at school, um, who gets to decide, you know, in Florida, they had the the infamous, unfortunately, don't say gay bill, uh, you know, that limits who can talk about their own their own life and and um, and 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 that sort of thing. And those elections absolutely matter. And in many cases, even to the state legislative level, only one party will run in some of these elections. And so we need people to be paying attention. We need them to demand that their elected, that their candidates tell them where they stand. We need them to stand up. And and we hope that more people um, and more women will stand up and run for those offices. Um, it's not it's not easy, but um, but there's there's no magic you know so, like there's no magic toolkit or no one way of running for office. Um, it's just that men have have always been willing to run and been willing to support each other as they run and women are catching up and we need more of them in office. To what degree is the ERA showing up in the dialogue and the dynamic this year? We're seeing it in some places. Um, I think it's certainly something that um, it seems ridiculous that we don't have it yet. Um, You know, we we heard about it in Virginia and Virginia has elections um, again this year. Um, And we've heard about it in in different places around the country. I think that um, we hear more about abortion rights, but the idea of equal rights is something that shouldn't be controversial in my opinion. (laughs) Um, I don't quite understand why it is, and yet here we are. So um, so it's again, something that, that is worth asking when you go to vote, what do people stand for? One of the things that polls are telling us is that um, Americans, especially American women, overwhelmingly want to protect their right to have an abortion and their reproductive rights. Yet um, that's not how Congress is behaving. It's not how our elected officials are behaving. Can you help us understand where that gap is? And for Mm -hmm. women who want to, the people who want to close that gap, how they can think about it and approach it. Yes, I think there's a couple things here. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw. I've worked in politics for many years, and we, this is this has always been a majority issue. It has also not always been a voting issue. I think the reality is that until the Dobbs decision. Um, most voters didn't actually believe that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. And when it did, voters were very quickly aware of what had happened and and went to vote on that um, accordingly. Now, the challenge that we face is that while voters um, very much understood who stood with them and who stood against them on abortion rights, um, we are seeing the, the Senate is already skewed towards Republicans by the basis of, you know, which states um, every state gets gets um, uh, gets to two senators, no matter the size. Um, but also, we see this in the House, where um, and in state legislatures around the country, where Republicans have successfully gerrymandered themselves into a majority. And so, we saw a couple of things in the 2022 election. Historically, that should have been a red wave. Um, Democrats should have lost 
dozens of seats um, and should have lost significantly more given the redistricting that happened, um, not in our favor. And instead, we did lose the House, but but by a very small margin. Um, and we were able to hold some seats that I think surprised people because voters understood that issue. Now, there are voters in, in blue states, I think you see California, New York, who think, well, in my state, it's safe, right? I have my abortion rights. And what I would tell voters is they need to understand this matters at every level of the ballot. And so that means it does matter at the federal level. If the federal government just, you know, it is swung all in Republican hands, they could pass a federal abortion ban that I believe a President Trump would sign. Um, and it wouldn't matter what your state says because suddenly abortion would be actually illegal. That is a challenge that I think um, you know, you'll know you see Democrats talking about a lot and you'll see the um, uh, reproductive rights groups talking about a lot because I'm not sure that voters um, fully understood that or maybe didn't feel the threat as acutely as they should right now. You know, just recently, we have a new House speaker who believes that abortion should be outlawed. And mm -hmm. that's something that voters should understand. Every House Republican, no matter what they claim, every House Republican voted for someone who believes that abortion should be against the law, full stop. And right. so if that's what you want, that's what you need to know going in. There is an effort right now by many politicians, we're seeing this in the Virginia um, uh, state legislature right now, Virginia is the last state in the House, uh, in the South that doesn't have, that, that allows, um, that doesn't have abortion restrictions. Um, and right now, they are trying to convince voters that they are they are not for an abortion ban, that they just want reasonable limits. Well, again, the question here is who gets to decide. And the same people who are claiming they're for reasonable limits have acknowledged they would they would ab ab absolutely ban abortion if they take control. So we need to remember that and hold politicians to account. What have you voted for? What have you stood for in the past beyond just what you're saying to get elected? And I, that's true on, on all sides. We should all do that. Um, I'm a former researcher. So I believe in, you know, digging into their record and taking a look and listening to their speeches. But I, I think that's incredibly important on this point, because this risk is uh, this. We no longer have the protection of Roe v. Wade. And so this right is at risk. It also seems like it's not just um, doesn't seem it, it's not just that there's a single question in front of Congress or on the ballot. It's that. This is also making its way into policy in like tentacles in yes. multiple dimensions. Can you talk yes. a little bit about that and where that decision making is happening? Sure. That's happening um, at, literally at every level of the ballot. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, for example, you may have heard um, uh, there's a senator, Senator T Tuberville, who stopped all, you know, in the Senate, one person can can stop a lot of things from happening. And he stopped um, uh, uh, military promotions, um, including at the very senior levels for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and things like that, single-handedly stopped them because he didn't like that um, the Biden administration had allowed for abortions to happen on military bases. And if you think about it, if you are a woman serving in the military and you get your health care, from um, the military, that's where you go. So um, so they did what they thought was right, allowed, allowed the people serving in the military who needed abortion care to be able to get it. And a senator decided as a result, he was going to stop needed promotions from happening. Those are the sorts of things that we're seeing around the country. Um, little, you know, ways of pulling those levers to try and control what rights, what health care we have access to, what decisions we get to make. And so we need to be looking at that. We're seeing it, it we, you know, there are, these have not passed yet, but there are places that are trying to say you can't travel out of the state for an abortion, that it's not enough to ban something in your state, but to also ban interstate travel, which, you know, feels, I, I remember a few years ago when we argued that this sort of thing would, would put us in Handmaid's Tale 
territory and, and a variety of male reporters said we were being hyperbolic. And that's what some um, some elected officials want to do because they don't believe that we should have this choice. And it's something that um, that we think quite simply is a decision you should get to make. And isn't it also with something like traveling across state lines that it's the perception whoever's doing the accusing of why you're traveling, regardless of whether that's why you're traveling. So in kind of a very essential way, it's limiting women's autonomy far beyond reproductive rights. Yes, 100 percent, 100 percent. And I will say I'd be remiss in, in, in not mentioning when we talk about reproductive rights, when we talk about any sort of LGBTQ rights, civil rights, any sort of rights out there. Um, one of the most important parts of that is 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 protecting your voting rights. So learning, you know, who is trying to limit who gets to vote and why are they doing that? Dig into what are the rights, who's tried to, in, in my belief, if you go into politics, you should want to convince more voters of your position. Some people in politics believe they should get to just control who gets to vote. And I think looking at that, truly understanding what are the voting rights in your state, in your locality, um, and, and who is trying to expand them and who is trying to limit that is something worth knowing. Because if you cannot vote, you cannot hold elected officials accountable. And that's an incredibly important part of this fight. And how pervasive are those kinds of questions right now? Very, very. We are seeing it all over the place. It's um, I, I'm going to blank on who actually said the quote, but it's the idea that some people, rather than letting voters choose, want to choose their voters, um, want to decide who gets to come out. And that's not how this should work. You know, no. I firmly I, I think that we should all believe that you, your responsibility should be convincing voters that your way is the right way and not telling them they can't vote. And so we're seeing that, um, you know, in big and small ways of trying to limit who comes out. Um, and that's not that's not a democracy. We, we should want um, more participation um, and more engagement and more debate. So unfortunately, we're running out of time. But Christina, you are a wealth of information. And if people want to learn more about you or Emily's List and how they can get involved and how they can become more educated voters, where should they go for information? Sure. Emily'sList.org is our website. We've got all of our endorsed candidates and we endorse new candidates all the time. Um, so you can find out more about them. Um, I am on uh, social media as at C Reynolds NC. Um, and you can find Emily's List on social media as well. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, thoughts about it, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle or X handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Many thanks, as always, to my amazing team, my fabulous producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer, Chris Tukes, our analytics at Wharton team, Kyle Kearns, Teresa Kosadak, and Jillian Rogers. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, and don't forget to vote. Every day there's something to survive.